look, the theatrical experience drives streaming too. We went traditionally theatrical at the time with films like Manchester by the Sea and The Big Sick, and we're able to take the power of the marketing of Amazon and data to drive those films to really record heights. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the movie theater industry. Joined once again by our co-host, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro. We've got a great episode once again this week with our guest, Bob Burney, the CEO of Picture House, Bob has a great background in both distribution and exhibition that we will be getting into shortly. But before that, uh, Rebecca, it was an, an interesting weekend at the box office. How are you doing on this Monday as we record? I'm just extremely happy for our colleagues uh, in the industry and for moviegoers uh, in the UK and France because they can go to the movies again. Both the UK market and the French market reopened their doors after an extended period of closures because of that latest surge of COVID-19 cases in those respective territories. They are now once again reopened in that process of, of getting back to 100%, still not there yet. But we now have early results from the United Kingdom market's box office. What are things looking like uh, after this weekend? It's looking like any UK moviegoers who were tired of sitting on their couches and, and wanted to see a movie, which they had a lot of movies to choose from. Basically, it was a backlog of things that had already come out in other territories. We had Godzilla vs. Kong debut in the UK, Ryan the Last Dragon, Tom and Jerry, Mortal Kombat, Nomadland, just off its Best Picture Oscar win. But of course, the big winner of the weekend was... Actually, a film that has not debuted yet here in, in North America, Peter Rabbit to The Runaway. It meshes with what we've uh, been saying in, in the past as to the power, particularly of family and children's cinema and, and getting families out. Not only have these family titles uh, proven to be successful, they've, they've really had quite long legs compared to some other titles. Uh, in the UK, they're still at 50% capacity and not all of the areas within the UK are open. For example, Scotland is open, but uh, the city of Glasgow is not. Northern Ireland isn't expected to open until May 24th. But yeah, it's it's a promising start. It's right out the gate, some, some really positive numbers there. Their biggest weekend in terms of box office since March 2020. And a reminder to our listeners that when we talk about markets, we're talking about how these markets are defined in the distribution sense when it comes to uh, movie theaters, right? So it's not exactly geographic indicators. So when we talk about the North American market, uh, the domestic market, that means US and Canada, Mexico geographically in North America is paired with the Latin American market. The same thing when we talk about the UK, we include Ireland as part of that market. Right now, cinemas in Ireland still closed, cinemas in Glasgow still closed. There are still some exceptions there within those capacity restrictions that you mentioned, Rebecca. But definitely great news. Peter Rabbit 2, 6.4 million out of the gate. 
really leading the UK market. It's just under Tenet's $7.1 million debut back in August. So very, very positive signs from our colleagues in the UK. Of course, we've been used to hearing uh, positive signs from China, which is a market that is much further along in its recovery process than many areas in Europe and indeed in, in North America as well. But Daniel, we had some really, really positive news out of China over this past weekend with the release of F9 early in that and several other markets. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because the the conversation about cinema recovery, I think, takes special importance in what happened last weekend overseas and what's about to happen this weekend in North America. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Let's start with the overseas part of the conversation. With F9, by far the highest profile title to open exclusively at cinemas overseas, coming out and being released in its first eight markets. Universal looked at the data they had over the past year handling the pandemic and basically cherry-picked the eight markets they thought could benefit the most with the film coming out just uh, just now, right? So let's start with China, where F9 made $136 million. That's nearly twice as much as Godzilla versus Kong's uh, opening weekend. And that's a, that's a three-day gross, Rebecca. That means from May 21st to May 23rd, it brought in a massive amount, really just the lion's share of what ended up being $163 million recouped from only eight markets. This is a new box office benchmark for the pandemic. Great news for a title like this one. Uh, As you know, these Fast and Furious movies, they're very, very popular in China. This is actually the first Hollywood import that has crested that 100 million debut since Avengers Endgame all the way back in 2019, which feels like 20 years ago at this point. But I mean, they've had their own local films, as as we've talked about here, that have been amazingly successful. But in terms of Hollywood imports, this is the first one to to break that 100 million opening weekend mark in in a while. And it's, it's good to see those numbers. And it's going to be a game of catch-up for the rest of the world to where China is right now. And We've been talking about it for a number of years leading into 2020, that the Chinese market was on pace to overtake the North America slash domestic market as the top box office power in the world. With the pandemic that occurred, and I think in this recovery year, we'll likely see that happen again. The big question mark is what's going to be the long-term impact of the shorter theatrical exclusivity window. One of the things I, I want to bring up when we talk about the growth of the Chinese market and their position in the industry today is to really step back and try to look beyond the alarmism that exists in some corners of of coverage when it comes to talking about China's role in the industry right now. This assumption of like, oh, well, Hollywood studios are making less movies overall and they're making these big blockbusters to appeal to international audiences. I I don't see the problem with that. (laughs) Yeah, no, not really. Growing up as a, a member of an international audience, having movies that are available worldwide that can work for different cultures, that's good. That's great. Now, the big question mark, of course, is how do you balance that with a national cinema in the United States? I think that's a United States conversation. And I don't think we're going to have a problem with that. I, right. You know, I think we have enough of a, a thriving independent scene. Now, for the question and the concern for me is, 
where that kind of mid-range independent national cinema, you know, where the where the role is going to be for that on the big screen. But I mean, I don't think China's making those decisions for us. That that's a decision that the industry over here is going to have to come to terms with as to the balance of the gigantic $200 million blockbusters versus maybe those mid-range things that would work quote-unquote better in streaming, even if I'd rather see it on the big screen anyway. And you're absolutely right about that. If you want to see more movies like Judas and the Black Messiah and and Nomadland and Minari, China is not the market making the decisions of how and when they're available in the United States. The respective uh, distribution companies and production companies involved in those productions are. So I think it's a misguided conversation sometimes when when we talk about the rise of the Chinese market and really the international markets because the Fast and Furious uh, movies are billion dollar plus just money makers. They're extremely popular in Latin America, very popular in the Middle East, very popular in Europe. And we've got more data points from some of these other markets where the title F9 opened this past weekend. So we had South Korea open to 9.8 million, Russia at 8.3 million. In those two markets, that's the highest opening weekend of the pandemic. So we are seeing these benchmarks happen with a big Hollywood title opening in these countries, very positive signs. And last but not least, Saudi Arabia, where it grossed 2.7 million. That's the biggest opening weekend of all time. Now there's an asterisk next to that. Uh, All time is, uh, (laughs) you know, it's it's less, yeah, it's less than five years that uh, Saudi Arabia has welcomed back cinemas, but hey, It's a good benchmark when we talk about movies coming in and the power of Hollywood to set the pace. Are these movies made exclusively for U.S. audiences? No, not anymore. It's been that case for a long time. But when it comes to exporting titles that can work around the world, Hollywood still has that position. You mentioned, of course, that that Fast and Furious is a a billion-dollar franchise. Actually, many times over, two of those films have passed the billion-dollar mark globally just individually with those films. But um, after last weekend at the box office in North America, it was a pretty slow weekend, but we have another franchise that has passed the billion dollar mark worldwide. At long last, the Saw franchise got there. It took them nine movies. They have not made as much as Fast and Furious, but God bless that scrappy little horror franchise. They crossed the billion dollar mark. Of course, the film that got it across that line is Spiral, The Book of Saw, which is coming out of its second weekend. Uh, Daniel, it had a pretty moderate drop, right? I mean, it wasn't anything too terrible in the 40s, right? Yeah, I think it was 48% from its opening weekend. That's a $4.5 million take to lead the market here in North America. So all in all, it wasn't a huge weekend here in North America, but of course, It was the calm before the storm because if last weekend was a big benchmark for where we were in the global picture of recovery in the markets that are already open and performing, this coming weekend, Rebecca, is going to be a huge weekend. Let's say the biggest weekend at the box office with the most writing on it, really, I think since Tenet opened back in September. Is that fair to say? I think so. We have two, I don't know if comparable is the right word because, you know, Cruella we have coming out and that's a Disney family flick and A Quiet Place is more in the horror thing, but they are 
fairly comparable in the sense that they're studio films. They try to reach out to a wide audience across different demographics, across different quadrants. Have we had really two films of this caliber go head to head, same release date since the pandemic? No, no, we haven't. Now we've had two titles open in the same weekend and perform well, both doing over 20 million respectively. That happened some weeks back with Warner Brothers Mortal Kombat and the surprise hit Demon Slayer distributed here by Funimation. But that was definitely an anomaly. I mean, that that right. wasn't. That was a surprise, a pleasant surprise. Yeah. These are huge movies where I think the story with Mortal Kombat and Demon Slayer was we were glad that they overperformed. I think there is a little bit of anxiety, and I think it's fair to say that, when it comes to very different projects like Cruella, a live-action uh, title from Disney that is going uh, day and date through PVOD, through Disney's portal, and a movie that's been delayed for over a year now, A Quiet Place Part Two, originally scheduled to open, I believe, was it March or April of 2020? We were like weeks away from that hitting theaters before, yeah. well, all this happened. I mean, is it weird that I'm I'm looking at the moderate drop of a spiral and 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 taking hope from that when it comes to Cruella in a Quiet Place? But for Spiral to have the fairly moderate drop that it did, I mean, it's not a film that has been getting great word of mouth. It's not a film that's been getting great critical response. It's pretty medium of the road. But I get a little hopeful twinge of like, okay, maybe just people want to go back to the movies again and they don't care what it is. And it's just they're revving up for summer movie season. I would think about it this way, Rebecca. Every day that passes here in the United States because of the success in the last couple of months of the vaccine effort, every day that passes, more than a million people each day are going to be open to a lot more experiences. I think it's going to be a, a big weekend to look at the numbers, see where we're at in this recovery, but also coming with the knowledge that this is going to be a gradual recovery that can change weekend to weekend. A lot riding, obviously, on these two films, but I, I think it'll only tell part of the story and definitely not forecast the, the future of theatrical for the rest of this year. And speaking about the future of theatrical, Daniel, uh, over the past few days, you had the opportunity to speak with Bob Burney of Picture House, also in the past an executive for Amazon. So interesting to hear his insights about the role of some smaller titles, maybe, in the future of the theatrical landscape. Yeah, we, we touched upon this briefly in, in the news segment earlier, Rebecca, when talking about what the role of these smaller and mid-range titles are going to be in the domestic market, right? I mean, the sort of titles that really engage, let's say, a smaller swath of moviegoers, but that are still crucial, I think, to the cultural life of cinema in the United States. Now, Bob Burney, the CEO of Picture House, who will be joining us in a, in a second, he has a long resume in this industry. Uh, he started working uh, in the cinema industry uh, with different roles in exhibition. And when it came to distribution, he's been one of the most influential executives in promoting foreign language and independent cinema that can break through to the mainstream and become a larger part of the cultural conversation. Now, he played this role during his previous stint at Picture House, a specialty distributor. And then he transitioned into Amazon Studios' initial foray 
into releasing movies. He was part of the marketing and distribution team over there. And he was responsible for bringing a lot of those early titles that Amazon put out exclusively to theaters and crossed over quite well. Movies like Manchester by the Sea, movies like The Big Sick. These were movies that did very well for Amazon Studios as it first got into releasing movies. Since then, Amazon has taken a very different approach to its uh, role in theatrical distribution and exhibition, going after bigger IPs, bigger titles, being more aggressive with day and date releases. Looking after these titles that don't attract as much attention, but that have a big upside potential when it comes to booking in both the art house and larger multiplexes. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. I know that you have a background working in exhibition. Can we start there? Uh, what your connection with the movie theater industry is in your career and the lessons that you took from that experience in your approach to theatrical distribution? Yes, absolutely. During uh, college at, at, in Austin, at UT Austin, I you know, worked at, at movie theaters. Right? And then after that, I went to Houston where I worked at a an AMC theater called the Greenway that was kind of a, you know, a loser at the time. And they said, you know, can you try indie films or anything there? And, you know, it really got me interested in, in, in trying to curate independent films. Later, I found a location in Dallas, Texas, originally in the far north suburbs where, you know, I was trying sort of indie and art films you know, to and, and kind of struggling, although it took off because I found, I don't know if you remember a film called My Brilliant Career. It, we were playing in the suburbs and all of a sudden it took off and played months in Dallas, which showed there was a need. Uh, and we finally found a beautiful location called the Inwood Theater in Dallas, which we turned into a real community center. Uh, it had three screens. We developed the first bar and restaurant in a movie theater. And really that was before any of the current trends. So I think what I learned from that is, is really to respect the audience and to learn from the audience what, how they responded and uh, to really invite people in and make it a community. We did film festivals there. We did director Q and A's. So I, I think my experience in exhibition really helped me learn what marketing works from other distributors you know, what methods to use and, but mainly how to talk to the audience. So it was really a, a great experience and, and I miss it. And I always follow the exhibition business as a distributor and, and really have a admiration for, you know, what it brings to people and how difficult it is too. And those are interesting points that you bring up in, in working with these independent cinemas that you're really working with in many cases, what the major studios are giving you in terms of marketing assets, right? And the challenge of marketing, say, a big tentpole is very different than when you're trying to build an audience for the independent and foreign language films that you as a distributor have, have established yourself and, and a number of companies through. Now, I understand this is your second stint at Picture House, so I wanted to go back and Go to the first stage of, uh, of your time there. How did you first come to be involved with that company? And what was its ethos coming into the distribution landscape at the time? At the time, Picture House evolved from a company I owned with some partners called New Market Films. And we had distributed, you know, some big, big films, including The Passion of the Christ and Whale Rider, 
And we sold New Market, the distribution assets, to a combination of HBO Films and New Line Cinema and renamed it Picture House. So it was really me and the same team under new corporate ownership and which at the time HBO Films wanted to start making theatrical films. And New Line Cinema had recently kind of shut down Fine Line, which was their indie version and wanted to have a new version. So since both of those companies were owned by Time Warner, they decided to, to split it and both invest and buy out uh, new market films. So that's how it started and, and was really to do independent films, but also to be, you know, financially responsible and, and, and try to make award winning films that also were successful. That was the goal. And now, now that you're back with uh, with Picture House, it's obviously a very different landscape. You mentioned that at the time, HBO was trying to get into movie theaters. Right now, we're in a reality where movie theaters are trying to make sure it's their product doesn't go to HBO at the same time. Where does this uh, part of the industry stand today as the entire world and the entire cinema sector is emerging from a pandemic? And we're looking right now at either programming opportunities or maybe even in some markets, some risk with where you date films. What's your take right now on where these sort of films can play and what their role can be for the cinema recovery? Well, it's interesting because not only recovering from the pandemic, but as of this week, we've gone into two huge kind of sea changing events with the changes at uh, Warner Media and AT&T, the rumors of Amazon buying MGM. So we're in a really volatile situation in which I think that, especially with the past year when, you know, all of a sudden Warner's was, you know, day and date with HBO Max. But my feeling is that there'll definitely be a good recovery. I think we've seen it already, the signs of, first of all, people wanting to come back and experiencing movie theaters. And, you know, I, I understand it will take some time. But it's also, you know, you can tell when you go back and see people's reaction that they've missed it and they really want to experience it that. Now, there has to be movies in the theaters for them to go to. And I think we're, we're in this period of the films are starting to come back, but they haven't really fully generated, you know, the type of consistent uh, releases. That said, I think for the indie films, there's a question. I mean, it's going to be harder in a way. Uh, you know, an older audience, traditionally, it might be slower to come back, although you could argue that they were the first vaccinated, maybe they will. But I do think that the, the experience will return. And it's going to be a, a, a slog, though, I think, through the summer and maybe until the fall, when some of the, the, the you know, the bigger films in the indie world, you know, get back to the festivals and get back to, you know, the publicity. Um, I think one thing that's the pandemic showed us is the sort of virtual festivals, uh, while admirable, uh, don't have the same impact as an in-person event. Um, and I do think that, you know, I know that Telluride is going to happen this year. Uh, Can has said they were, were going to, and it looks like it will. So I think it's going to take not only the, the, the distributors, but these festivals to start generating the publicity and the awareness and the excitement that make people want to go back to the movies. Yeah, that's interesting you say, because I think 
in my position tracking the industry, it's felt a little bit like sports being played at empty stadiums right now with the virtual festival season, right? Where the events are out there, the content is there, but it doesn't seem like an occasion. And the cultural impact of the film festival cycle that, as you know, has such uh, relevance for award seasons, for acquisitions, for the independent and foreign film uh, community, it just feels like it, we really need to have these events back for them to to hit that full potential, to hit that full impact. I agree. And I think you're going to find a lot of the distributors are going to wait and see if these festivals are really back or if they're hybrid, kind of part virtual, part in-person. And that, that'll weigh into their decisions about giving, you know, their biggest films to the festivals. You know, a lot of the films from last year are still waiting. You know, what comes to mind is like the Wes Anderson movie and others that have been you know, sitting around and, you know, waiting for the cinemas to come back and the festivals. So, uh, yeah, but it feels like it is going to happen, but it may be immediately in the summer, you know, it's going to be a little tough because we haven't had that experience. And one of those films that had to wait during the pandemic was actually one of the releases that you have right now in theaters, uh, Fatima, which if I'm not mistaken, was scheduled to release, what was it? Uh, late spring, early summer of yeah. 2020, before obviously all this happened? Correct. Originally, we were going to go in April. And then, of course, this happened. And we we kind of held on to the fact that maybe late in the summer, say August, it could happen, you know, finally happen. But as we got around July, it, it was looking rough. And we decided to pivot. And we did, we, we, we went with a PVOD release, you know, following some of the last summer's Films did that, you know, Trolls and other things. And um, it did quite well. And we played some independent films at the time. Then the film went on, you know, it was successful on PVOD. It was successful on VOD and DVD and then played streaming as well. And so after all these things, we still then reopened the theaters with, with AMC. And I think at the time, you know, last January, we had gone to... AMC in Kansas City and showed them the film and got a great response. And in fact, AMC invited some of the local Kansas City, you know, people from the the bishop's office and the Catholic diocese there. And we got a great response. So I think they they liked the film and saw the reaction. And when we reopened the film this time, we got tons of publicity, particularly in the Catholic area, a lot of interviews, I think because it was in theaters. You know, it, it the theatrical release did give that kind of momentum and a specific date and, and kind of made it more an event of an event, even though it'd been on all these other platforms. And it's interesting. Like, I think it's unusual. And this was a special time and theaters needed films. But it does show you, I think what it showed me is that uh, the theatrical release, it really does create and generate publicity and excitement. and And that's... Um, maybe there'll be in the future this sort of ver either a hybrid of the two weeks like Universal and Peabody or Day and Date or traditional theatrical releases. I think, you know, it's kind of got to the point where there's there's going to be multiple ways to do something. I do think that independent films, though, need word of mouth and they need to play. So um, I think for for the indie films, 
um, you know, there, there's still going to be room for a traditional release, a traditional window, maybe shorter than 90 days, but certainly letting it film because it needs audiences to tell people. And, and it takes a while and you need to spread that out compared to, you know, a wide release where everything's the same day. I think one of the things that interests me the most right now is we begin to re-understand how this industry works, right, under, under this completely new method of doing business is what seems to be pretty clear calls from the audience to see more diversity on screen, to see more cultures, different languages. Where I find a bit of a disconnect, obviously, covering this for a living is that a lot of these films exist. <laughs> There's companies like yours that have been putting out these films. It's not that these movies aren't being made or that they're not being distributed in the United States. I One of my criticisms, I think, of being a movie fan in Mexico is I can see more Mexican cinema in New York City and in the United States in major cities than I can in some medium-sized cities in Mexico itself. So what do you think is missing there when we know that the content is there? We know that the distributors are there and we know that even major circuits like AMC are booking these films. What's missing for us to connect this part of the industry with audiences that are clearly clamoring to see the type of content that's out there? Yeah, I think I think it, it is interesting because I, I, I do think it's there and, you know, it takes usually it takes a film or something to break through, but then it takes the follow up and the consistency. You know, I remember when Itumama uh, Tambien back at IFC, you know, it kind of broke through and yet you need to follow up and the, the, the sort of exhibitors and distributors need to keep going. It can't be because then maybe a film, a certain type of film comes and doesn't do business, right? And so they go, okay, it's over. Either Mexican films work, now they don't work. It It needs a consistency. And I think the I do think the independent distributors have made inroads with smaller exhibitors and the larger ones too, like um, to experiment with it. But I think now that the, the the media targeting is better with digital media, I think it's more, you know, it's possible. And I think we will see more of it. And we need some successes and we need some, some of the exhibitors to keep trying to play, not just rely on one film, whether it works or not, but continue. And I do think, for example, you know, last year with Parasite doing so much business, it definitely woke up the whole business to like, wait a minute, you've kind of ghettoized some of these films because they're in another language. And yet the, the emotion and the power of the cinema breaks through that. And if you can do that with the right storytelling, it's a big movie. I think it's possible, and I think the past couple of years have shown have shown that. Um, so it is tough with all the competition and all the streaming and everything else. There's more ways for content to reach customers, but I do think um, I do think it will improve. I think there's a better shot, but I, I think it's a good example that you said, like in Mexico, same thing. There needs to be, you know, hopefully some more independent cinemas there you know, that can play these things because it is, it is shocking when you find out like there's more in New York, as you said. It's a weird sort of thing. And I think that the festival scene also works as a sort of, uh, let's say cultural seal of approval, right? Where these films from a local market get, uh, you know, the stamp seal of approval of international prestige and go back. So that point you were saying earlier of 
the film festival's role in the recovery effort for independent and foreign cinema in the U.S. is really going to be crucial, really, even when we look at it outside of the U.S. Yeah. And I hope that as recovery comes, that enough both independent exhibitors hang in there and reopen and that the bigger chains give it give a shot to these to these films as well. And, you know, it's going to going to take effort on both the distribution and exhibition communities to really work together to combine their data of audiences and share with each other. Uh, I think that's the thing. There has to be a sharing of data overall to reach the audience. How can we work together? And I think I think that's happening. You see that um, with a lot of the circuits that are realizing that, you know, let, let's get together and even even competing exhibitors need to need to try and share some audience data. Well, talking about data and new platforms, obviously in your career, you also had a period working at Amazon, helping them get off the ground. And it wasn't uh, through big tent poles. You came in there with a very interesting strategy of hitting the sort of independent and foreign cinema that could break through domestically. And during your stint there, it very much did. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience there, what you learned from that experience, and how you've applied those lessons to Picture House today? Yeah, at Amazon, it, obviously, the, the focus is on data, but also it's it's how you um, can present the films and, and, and market them. So I was able to you know really learn a lot of their systems there to reach audiences. But at the same time, it was trying to say, look, the theatrical experience drives, movies can drive streaming too. And and there we, we went traditionally theatrical at the time with films like Manchester by the Sea and The Big Sick. And we're able to take the power of the, you know, the marketing of Amazon and data to drive those films to really record heights, you know, for a film like Manchester by the sea that I think a lot of people thought, wow, this is, this is a tough one. And, but it really worked. And then the streaming was successful after that. I think films, movies particularly can drive su subscribers to streamers. And I think there's always this tension between, okay, is it exclusively theatrical for a while? Is it day and date? And definitely after, after some time at Amazon, there was there was a lot of push internally to to go straight to streaming or day and date, you know, and, and, you know, there's always factions within these companies. But then if you look now, what's happened to Amazon is that films like Coming to America and Borat that are big movies, I think they've also realized that big movies are what matters to them. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I do think it shows that that customers want big movies. And, you know, I hope in the future there's a balance there between uh, theatrical and streaming. And I, I think actually there, there will be. I, I think there'll be uh, more theatrical from these streamers, uh, at least as, as promotional vehicles. So I, I hope that can work with exhibition in some way. I think one of the things we also have to start getting used to as we re-understand this industry is that the metrics of success are different from a established legacy studio to a independent distributor like Picture House and company that's in between, say like an Amazon or a Netflix. Could you share what those metrics of success are between, say, your experience at Amazon, where you had obviously 
different benchmarks to consider than they are right now at Picture House because looking at box office numbers alone at just dollar gross, that doesn't even begin to tell the story of what these two different models value. Well, it's true. I think it's the changes between the old Hollywood style of a one picture success or failure can literally sink a company where the streamers are looking at multiple, multiple films and they're looking at increasing the number of subscribers and delivering you know, one one or two films that don't work absolutely make, you know, no difference in a way for Netflix or Amazon. And they can take much bigger bets. It, it's a it's a different world where they look at the much more uh, broader, bigger picture than and, than the old like live and die by the Friday night or the weekend of a studio. And now the the tough question that I have to ask you as someone that looks at box office numbers and is trying to understand what the role of streaming is right now with your experience working in both traditional theatrical model and a model where streaming is a core part of its identity, what's it going to take to get more viewership data from the streaming companies? Now, I know during your tenure, we did get box office from films like Manchester by the Sea, like uh, The Big Sick, you partnered with different uh, other distributors that provided us those numbers. Now, I'm not sure where the priorities lie, where sometimes that data is harder to come by theatrically. And of course, the big mystery box of how can we begin to understand electronic streaming data, or is that even relevant for us to, to start asking for? I think it is. I, I think you're going to see. Um, a slow trend to reveal information because as the streaming services get competitive, I think they're going to want to tout their successes and also to get filmmakers to, to go there. They're going to start revealing some information. Obviously, you know, that's always been private, you know, but, but at the same time, what you're seeing is the studios starting to withhold information. Right. So you see that the studios now start saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we don't need to report the grosses. So I think we're going to see this back and forth, you know, and and a lot of selective report like, yes, if this one was great, we're not going to hear about the ones that that aren't so good. So but I think in the long run, we will start to see more reporting. Yeah, I think that's the definitely the concern that we have, that this turns into a press release business rather than a news business, right? Rather than having insights and, and learning from mistakes uh, and learning from missed opportunities that we just tout press releases. And that might create a gray area for movies like the ones Picture House puts out, that yeah, the numbers you, really just tell part of the story. Yeah, and I think also there's going to be a, a need for context and what the numbers mean. You know, it's going to be different, like, because... Yes, you could use the theatrical as a launching pad, which would be great, but then you want to know what the whole life of a film is. And so, you know, that that sort of bigger story is going to, it's still being kind of hidden. And, and that that is, the, it's not just one theatrical part or one streaming, it's, it's the entire life of the film. I'm, a, you know, very optimistic person in general, but I do feel like the theatrical experience will survive this. It's going to be different. There may be different terms and maybe even a different number of screens, but I do think it will survive. And the customers and the audience, they really want it and demand it. So there'll be a, there'll be a hybrid, but it will, it will not go away as some, some people rumored. 
Well, Bob, thank you very much. We, we definitely agree with you. And, and thanks again for joining us today here on, on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Once again, this has been a conversation with Bob Bernie, the CEO of Picture House here on the Box Office Podcast. And thanks again to our co-host, Rebecca Polly for joining us in this episode. And thanks again to you, our listener, for tuning in. If you like what we're doing, please don't forget to subscribe both on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you're listening to us. It really helps us continue doing what we do. If you really especially like us, don't forget to leave a review. That also helps. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Don't miss our next episode next Thursday when we will bring a full analysis on the Memorial Day weekend box office here in North America. Thanks again. <laughs>